So today we're going to learn the Sicha on, it's called Parshas Zachor. So even though this week we read the Parsha of Tetzavah, but we also read the Shabbos before Purim, we read another from a second section of the Torah called Parsha Zachor, which we're going to explain the significance and why and so on. This comes from volume 21 in the Rebbe's Lekutei Sichos on his uh, weekly published uh, talks on the Parsha. So the second Torah we read on Shabbos is called the section of Zachar. And because the portion that we read is called Zachar, the entire Shabbos also gets called Shabbos Parsha Zachar. Shabbos Zachar, Shabbos Parsha Zachar. We give it that name. What is Zachar? Zachar in Hebrew means, Zachar means to remember. We have to remember something. What are we trying to remember? So first the background to this, and then we're going to talk the actual Sicha. So the background is that there were people that were descendants from the family of Esav, and they were not such good people. And after we left Mitzrayim, after we left Egypt, we were in the desert, and we waited, we counted 49 days until the holiday of Shavuos, and then we got the Torah. Now, during those 49 days, during those 49 days, the... The, the, during those 49 days, there were people called the Amalekans or the Amalek nation, and they decided that they are going to teach the whole world that even though the whole world was scared to start up with the Jews now because we got out of Egypt and Egypt, which was the superpower of the time, had their big fall, they're going to show the world that we could still start up with the Jews. And they came to wage war. And as the Torah tells us the story in the end of Parsha B'Shalach, that any Jews that were under the clouds, they were in the desert, they were under the protection. Jews that went outside the clouds, they ended up getting attacked from the Amalekan people. We needed to intervene. Moshe calls Yeshua and he tells Joshua to go out to war against these Amalekan people. Moshe says he's going to go to the top of the mountain. He's going to hold his hands up and everybody will see the hands are up to heaven and that will make that the heavens will have mercy and Joshua will be able to win. And Hashem says, as long as your hands are up, the Jews will win. If your hands go down, they will lose. Moshe brings up his brother Aaron and his nephew Chor, who was Miriam's son. They come up with him and they make sure that Moshe's hands, when they get weak and heavy, they make sure to hold it up or put rocks under it. And it's interesting, actually, Moshe gets a bit criticized here because he told Yeshua to do the job instead of him doing the job. So, but in any case, Yeshua goes and the only people that he kills are the leaders of the Amalekan people. He wasn't told yet to go kill all the Jews. That commandment's going to happen a little bit later on when we actually get into the land of Israel and when we're going to already have a king. So later on in the time of King Saul, we get a commandment that we should kill out all the Amalekan people. But in the meantime, we killed the leaders so they were crippled and they couldn't really fight us anymore. 
But these Amalekan people were such terrible people. It was in their blood for no reason at all whatsoever. They decided to put up this fight against us. And Hashem did not like this at all. And we're soon going to learn many different interesting details about them. But what's interesting, and this is this is the opening of this talk, is, is that always the Shabbos before Purim, we read this piece. We always read this, this piece of section about the Amalekans. Why? The simple logic is because since Haman, Haman, comes from the Amalek people because Haman was the son of Amdasa, who was the son of the Agagites, and the Agag was the king of the Amalekan people at a certain point. So we know that his lineage goes back all the way to the Amaleks. And since he's part of the Amalekan people, so we want to read the section about killing the Amalekan people, specifically the Shabbos before Purim. So here is the question that we're going to talk about why this is the chosen piece to read before Purim in more details. Regarding this established rule that we read the Parsha of Zachar on Shabbos that's before Purim, Zachar, Sashar, Asa, Lecha, Malik, remember what the Amalekans did to you. So there's a Magen Avram. Magen Avram is one of the most well-known commentaries on the Code of Jewish Law. And on this Shabbos, a Parsha Zachar, he has a discussion about this topic. He was one of the leading Ashkenazic uh, authorities in Halacha. He lived in the uh, 17th century and he's quoted all over the place in all kinds of Jewish law books of Halacha. He's quoted all over the place. Actually, amazing how many times he's quoted as a major authority in Halacha. So he asks a question and he says like this, we know that there's more than just one mitzvah uh, that, that has the concept of remembering. There's many things that you have to do where there's a commandment in the Torah, you should remember this and this. For example, in the blessings before the Shema, we allude to six different times the Torah says the idea that you should remember something. Actually, in the Alter Rebbe's Shulchan Aruch, he writes, he explains where it's hinted to in the blessing right before the Shema, the six zechiros, the six rememberings. But either way, at the end of davening, after Aleinu, you actually have the six remembrances, and we read that every day of the year, every day of the year, no, no day that you don't say it. The, the six is called the sheish zechiros. So the Magen Avram asks a question, why do we mention and we read from the Torah, only one of those zechiras, one of those remembrances, we read one time during the year on a special occasion, and all the other ones, we don't make any special remembrance. We read it in the weekly portion, but you don't read it like this Shabbos called, the whole Shabbos is called Shabbos Zachar, or Parsha Zachar. What are the other ones? You have, it says you should remember the story of Matan Torah, of God giving us the Torah on Mount Sinai. You should remember the story of the Amalekans. You should remember the story of Miriam, Moshe's sister Miriam. One time she told her brother, oh, you see what's going on over there? Our brother Moshe, he got divorced from his wife. You know, it's because of this prophecy. It was like a slanderous kind of talk that she spoke about Moshe putting down the fact that he got divorced because she didn't know that Moshe got divorced because God told him to get divorced. Because Moshe had to talk 
face to face with Hashem or pel, pel, mouth to mouth with God all the time. So it was too distracting for him to be married. So even Moshe, Hashem says he should separate from his wife. But Miriam didn't know that. And we know the story that she got leprosy as a punishment for this. And she had to be quarantined for seven days. As a matter of fact, it says that the Jew, entire Jewish nation decided that we're not going to travel on further until Miriam comes back to join us in the traveling in the desert. She was a very pious, holy woman and everybody wanted her in their presence. But the point is that we have this mitzvah called Remember What Miriam Did, the story of Miriam. We also have the mitzvah on Shabbos to remember that it's Shabbos, Right? Zachar es Yom HaShabbos Lekadji, you should remember that it's Shabbos, that's number five. And we have number six, a commandment to remember the story of the golden calf, the Maisa HaEgel. So asks the Magen Avram, why is it that we established a rule that we shall read from the Torah, a special Parsha Amalek, about the Amalekins, and none of the other five remembrances do we make a special to do and take out a Torah to read just about those remembrances. In other words, if you're trying to emphasize an idea that let's remember this and take out the Torah and make a special Shabbos once a year for remembrance, why only this one of Amalek? I understand why it's the Shabbos before Purim because that's connected to Haman who's an Amalekite. But why don't we make a tumult about all the other Zachars? So the Magan Avram answers, he says like this, I'll give you a logical reason. He says the giving of the Torah, to remember the giving of the Torah, and to remember Shabbos, he says we have special days of the year that we remember them. For example, Shavuos is the holiday to remember the giving of the Torah, and every Shabbos we have a special day of the week to remember that it's Shabbos. That's why we don't read a special Torah reading about that. And when it comes to the story of Miriam, and her lush and horror and her leprosy, and the story of the golden calf, the sages didn't want to make a special Shabbos to remember that. I mean, that's negativity about the Jews. That's not from our complementary traits. So we don't want to make a whole to-do about a negative trait that we had. Yeah, it's bad enough that, you know, it has to be remembered, it's in the Torah, but I don't have to go make a whole special Shabbos, uh, you know, service for that, a special Kiddush for that. I mean, you know, it's not from the good things and not our good qualities. So that's what the Magen Avram answers, why we make a whole Shabbos about Amalek. So again, because the Amaleks have, they don't have any other special day where they're, they're mentioned in the year. So therefore, make a special Shabbos the Shabbos before Purim, to read that. Remembering that it's giving of the Torah, we have Shuas, remember the, the commandment of Shabbos, we have every Shabbos, and the other two are not relevant. They're negative stuff. So based on this, the Rebbe says, I have a question on the Mug in Avram. We get his answer, that it's logical that we should have a special occasion to remember Amalek. However, it's not a good enough answer. Because even to remember the story of Amalek, we have the holiday of Purim. Purim is all about wiping out, you know, you knock the graggers, you stamp your feet, you're knocking out Haman, meaning, what does that mean? You're knocking out the Amalek people. So we already have really a special ceremony already for knocking out the Amalekans. As a matter of fact, on Purim, Purim morning, you have davening, and during the davening, we, before we read the Megillah, we take out a Torah scroll, and we read a section of the Torah called the section of Amalek, this exact story of Amalek. So we actually do remember it already on the Purim. 
And as the Talmud says, the fact that we read Zachar, the Shabbos before Purim, is based on the idea that it says that you should not practice the practicings of Purim. In other words, an asiya, uh, uh, an action of Purim without remembering first what they did. In other words, you know, the, 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 where Haman's you know, ancestors did. So therefore, you should first do the mentioning of Amalek and then celebrate Purim. It's based on a verse, actually, in the, in the Megillah. It says that, These days you should remember and you should practice traditions on this day. So remembering comes to the story of Zachar and the action is the celebration of Purim. So you see that we do mention the ideas of, of Purim, of Amalek, so in that case, why do we have to have a special reading on the Shabbos before? Just mention about it on Purim, right before Purim. But why the whole to do a mentioning of Amalek as it stand out a one and alone th- idea to mention this Amalek thing? So the fact that there is a, a instituted rule that we should read the section of remembering what Amalekans did, not just because there's a special time to mention it right before Purim, but mainly because, but mainly because there is an addition to mentioning the story of Amalek. There must be something that's an addition, that's some kind of benefit of making a whole Shabbos to do about Amalek story. So we have to understand what is so special about remembering what the Amalekans did that you don't have this specialty by the other mitzvahs of remembering things. Now, seemingly, says the Rebbe, on the contrary, all the other, in other words, you could ask the question even more. Not just why this one over all the other ones. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, all the other mitzvahs to remember things are actually much more general mitzvahs that include the whole Torah. For example, the, the story that we stood at the foot of Sinai and we got the Torah, that's a fundamental idea to remember. It's connected to the entire Torah and all the mitzvahs. Otherwise, we wouldn't have anything. Shabbos, for example, to remember that it's Shabbos. Shabbos also is a general idea that's so important because it encompasses the whole week, all the six weekdays. On the other hand, the story of the, the, the uh, golden calf that sin, which was the opposite of believing in one God. And we know the Torah tells us that remember, every time you do an Avera, every time you do a sin, Hashem says, I'm going to remember the sin of the golden calf. So you see that all sins are really connected to the sin of the golden calf. So again, that's a more of a general mitzvah of the sin of the golden calf is a encompasses all the mitzvahs in that way. And also... And also, it helps us a more general thing that you should be careful in all the practices of all the positive mitzvahs. So you see that Matan Torah, Shabbos, the Golden Calf, these are all general mitzvahs. As a matter of fact, even the story of Miriam, that she spoke slanderous talk about Moshe, right? We don't find, even though we don't find any tradition that we do nowadays to remember the story what Miriam did that's true that's like it ha- it's a story that you know happened in the past but nevertheless we all know 
how careful we have to be from not to talk slanderous talk because look what happened to Miriam, right? She got leprosy for this and all the, the whole Jewish nation waited seven days just because of this. And we know that slanderous talks is from one of the worst sins that exists. As a matter of fact, the sages tell us that it's so huge, the sin of slander, of, of slander talk, of Lashon Hara, it's actually in comparison to doing the three, the three cardinal sins of idol worship, pr- public promiscuous behavior, or murder. Imagine that. Like you all know that you're allowed to sin on any sin. Sorry, you're not, you're supposed to, you're not supposed to give up your life for a, a regular sin. The only sins you're supposed to give up your life is one of these three cardinal sins. Again, idol worship, public promiscuity, and Murder. You're not supposed to, somebody tells you, puts a gun to you, says, if you don't kill that person, I'll kill you. You have to take your life. You're not allowed to kill somebody else. So it says that Lashonara is so great. The Talmud learns it out because you have the word uh, of, of Gadlus, whatever. It's a big, a word that emphasizes it in a much bigger way of Lashonara. Look how bad it is. And it says actually Lashonara is so severe that it's actually very difficult. It's from the most difficult sin to walk away clean from. In other words, that you don't fall into that sin. He actually brings down on the bottom in the footnote from the Talmud and Baba Bastra that says that actually this sin of speaking gossip talk is actually, unfortunately, a sin that people sin on it every single day. In other words, it's very hard, very, very, very hard to be totally clean from this. Imagine how hard. So the point is that even though there's no ritual that we do every day for Miriam, but the fact to be to consciously be more careful about Lashon Hara, that we do learn. So again, you see that the, the story of Miriam's remembrance is something that's a general mitzvah. However, when it comes to the story of Amalek, you don't have that generosity idea. You don't have that concept. It's an individual mitzvah about remembering what the Amalekans did. And seemingly, it doesn't, there's no lesson really for every Jew in our day-to-day behavior. And to, and to learn something that's going to help you universally to everything that you do day-to-day. How does the story of remembering what Amalek did help you so much to your day-to-day life? So in other words, why in the world is there such a, tradition that we take out the Torah and the whole Shabbos is called Parsha Zachar, Shabbos Zachar, such a huge thing and it's the only one of all the six remembrances that we make a whole to-do, we read it in specifically just the section you take out of Torah. Doesn't make sense. Any of the other ones would have made a lot more sense. Why this one? It's one, one simple mitzvah that there's nothing really you could seemingly learn out of this. So that's one way of understanding the question. Now the Rebbe says, actually, when you think about it, there's a much greater question that we could ask even of why in the world would we read uh, this piece of the wiping out of Amalek. He says, think about it a second. The entire purpose of remembering what Amalek's did, what's the purpose to remember it? In the simple level. The Torah tells us that you should remember what Amalek did so that we could wipe them out. As the verse actually said, I placed it from you, opposite of all of from, from these enemies, and Timcha You should wipe out the Amalekans. In other words, the goal of remembering about what they did is in order to get rid of them. 
And as the Rambam puts it, who's the Rambam we know is the codified of halacha, of Jewish law, the Rambam says we were commanded to remember what the Amalekans did and to hate them every single moment and to awaken in your soul that we should go out to war against them when it's the time to go out a war. So in other words, the whole point of remembering is, is not, there's nothing in it about the remembering. The goal is only to wipe them out. Okay, you're not going to remember to wipe them You don't want to know to wipe them out without remembering. But what's in the remembering thing? Why do we make this whole Shabbos, Shabbos Zachar? I mean, I'm adding in my words, maybe we should call it the Shabbos of wiping them away. Why the Shabbos of remembering about them? The, the goal is actually to wipe them out. What's the emphasis on remembering them? And as a matter of fact, nowadays, we cannot even wipe them out. There is no mitzvah today to wipe them out today. Why? Because there's two issues that we have that we can't wipe out the Amalekans today. Number one is, the mitzvah to wipe out Amalekan people is only when the Jews are living in their land. Meaning that we have Israel where the entire nation is living there. And another condition is, we actually have to be content, restful, relaxed. And then you have the mitzvah to wipe, to wipe them out. So in other words, if we're not in Israel with full dominance of control, the entire people, there's no mitzvah actually to wipe them out. And another thing is, even if we would meet this condition that we would be in the land in that kind of menucha kind of way, it's actually not possible today to wipe out all the Amalekans. In other words, let's say that the entire Jewish nation from around the world somehow made Aliyah and we were all in Israel together. And we're relaxed, we're comfortable there, we're content, we're ready. Could we go kill all the, kill all the Amalekans out? No, you can't. Why? Because we know there's a, there's a, the famous quote that says that when Sancherif, the king Sancherif came, he destroyed, he, he confused, he mixed up the entire world. What does that mean? So if you go back a little bit in history, around 700 BCE, there was a king named Sancherif, and he was the king over the Asaria, Syria. Assyria, not Syria, but Assyria, uh, which is somewhere in the region uh, around where uh, present-day um, Iraq is. Okay, so this is so, so somewhere there. So he had this thing that he would get, he would conquer nations. He was very into conquering nations and taking them over. But because he had this fear that nations would would eventually, you know, regroup and rebel and take him over. So every time he would win a country, he would move all the people from this country and transfer them to another country. He was very into that. He would chase everybody and bring, he would uproot them and plant them in another place. And he did this to the Moabite people. He did it to the Ammon people. He did it to the Amalekans. He mixed up the whole world. It's called Bilbel Bilbal is like Mavavl, he bobbled, he, he confused the whole world. Eventually that became known as Babylonia, which Babylonia means exactly that, that he confused the whole thing. Now, when he confused the whole thing, 
nobody knew anymore. Are you an Amalek guy? Are you a are you a, a Ammon guy? A Moabite? Nobody knew anymore what nations they came from. So he confused the entire picture. Ever since his time, by the way, there was a time when he tried to, to, to destroy the first temple during the time of Chizkiah Hamelech, the Jewish king. And he was very, very close to doing it. He gathered together many, many groups of armies to destroy the temple. And the last minute, Hashem made such a miracle, they fell flat on his face and they lost, which is a t- subject we could cover one day when we do that part of Tanakh. But the point is that he confused all place that you don't know anymore who's a certain Amalekin. And there's a rule in Halacha called the Parish, Meruba Parish. Whoever separates from a group, we consider you part of the majority of the population where you're in. So if the Amalek people, we don't know who they are. So even if we did have Israel the way we're supposed to, we cannot kill because we don't know who's a certain, for certain, an Amalekin. Comes out that the whole idea to remember the Amalekins that we're going to read this Shabbos, Shabbos Zachar, we're going to read the special Shabbos to remember what the Amalekins is. It's not just that it's nothing to do with reality, seemingly. In other words, what's the point of it? For this, you have to make a whole to do, get hundreds of thousands of people to come to Shul just to hear this reading, make a special Shabbos for this. A lot of Jews around the world make big efforts to come to Shul to Shabbos, even if they can't go to Shul other Shabbos. Nobody wants to miss this Shabbos. It's the Shabbos Zachar. But why? why? What's, the, what's the logic here? Seemingly, it's got no connection to our practice. It doesn't even make sense to do it to remember them. And it, for sure, we can't even do the goal, which is to remember them, to wipe them out, but we can't even wipe them out. And even if we had the land, we couldn't wipe, we, it wouldn't help us. We don't know who they are. So what's the whole point to Read this and make a whole Shabbos out of this. Says the Rebbe that you could only understand the significance of this reading of the Amalek section of the Torah. You could only actually appreciate it if we really first understand the, the essence of what does it mean even to remember them. Why? Because we could ask another two questions about this idea of remembering. Since the whole point, the whole point of the goal of remembering the Amalekans is to wipe them out, why do we need to have a mitzvah at all today to remember them when according to the Torah we can't even wipe them out? Which is more or less the question we asked before. Number two, why do we at all need to have a second commandment? Why does the Torah tell us two commandments? One commandment is, remember them. Another commandment is, wipe them out. Just There should be just one commandment, to wipe them out. The goal is to wipe them out. Like we have a rule. When Joshua was conquering Israel, Hashem said, Lo techaya kol neshama. Do not let live even in, nobody. Nobody should be allowed to live from the seven nations in the land of Israel. There was a condition. Anybody from the seven nations that was willing to give up their idol worship and serve only one God, then you could stay, no problem, because then you're not going to have that same, that same, um, the same title of the seven nations. You basically gave up the beliefs of the seven nations. But otherwise, there was a commandment that nobody should be alive there. So why don't we have the same thing here? 
we should have had just one commandment in the Torah, wipe out the Amalekites. Isn't that the, that's the full goal? So the fact that we have to remember, that means that there's something special about remembering them. And if you look in the Rambam, the Rambam actually has in, in the beginning of his uh, set of books, of his set of the 14 books of the Rambam, the Rambam has a book called the Sefer HaMitzvahs. It's the book of mitzvahs. He lists out what are the 613 commandments in the Torah. If anybody of us would read through the whole Torah, you may not be able to make your own list carefully of what is counted as a mitzvah and what's not counted as a mitzvah, right? I'll, I'll give you an example uh, off this topic. It says in the Shema that you should tie a sign on your arm for your tefillin and a remembrance between your eyes you put on the head tefillin. Is that two separate mitzvahs for your arm and your head or is it one mitzvah, a pure of tefillin? So I'm saying, so you need to look in books like the Rambam that he, he defines what are the 630 mitzvahs, what is and what isn't counted as a mitzvah. And so the Rambam, in this subject about the Amalek, and there's other authorities also that have the list of the, what the 613 mitzvahs are. You have the famous uh, Smag, the Sefer Mitzvah Skudayla, he lists out what the 613 mitzvahs are. So they say that wiping out Amalek and remembering what Amalek did is actually two different commandments. It's not just I remembering in order to wipe them out. Remembering is a mitzvah on its own. One of the 613 mitzvahs. And wiping them out is another one of the 613 mitzvahs. And there's even different categories for these two mitzvahs. For example, wiping out Amalek is a commandment for the entire Jewish people as a whole, not on every individual Jew. In other words, it's the onus is on the public, not on an individual. And according to many opinions, the mitzvah actually is on a king. Only a king. In other words, if the Jewish people don't have a king, there is no mitzvah to wipe out the Amalekans. That's why, go back to the stories in Tanakh, only when we finally had our first king, King Saul, which didn't last us too long. I think it was only two years. But as soon as we got a king, then that mitzvah was enacted. Because the king basically represents all the people. So the, the, this mitzvah to remember, there's many. And another, let's say, I'll give you another, another um, law about wiping out the Amalekans. Not just that it has to be the responsibilities on the community, on the king. It's a mitzvah actually that only applies after the Jews enter into the land of Israel. Like I mentioned before, under Moshe's rule, we were still in the desert. The mitzvah wasn't to wipe out all the Amalekans. We only crippled them by killing their leaders. But we, there was no mitzvah to wipe out every single Amalekan until we get into the land of Israel. So you see that there are many and more specific details to the law of wiping out. However, the other mitzvah called the mitzvah to remember the Amalekans is actually a mitzvah on every individual. It's an individual mitzvah of every single one of us has to remember what Amalek did. And it's a mitzvah that's always, it's not just when we're in the land of Israel and so on. Every place in the world where you are, there's a mitzvah to remember what the Amalekans did. So what do you see? that remembering Amalek is a general concept. It's all over the place. 
If so, we need explanation. What is it that we're doing by remembering the Amalekans? We're, we proved just now that it's not just an introduction. Remember so that we can wipe them away. No, remembering on its own has a specific merit that's needed to be done. So what is this that we're doing that we're trying to remember the Amalek people? So the explanation is as following. It's as follows. The idea of the Amalek people is, it's brought down in many places, and Hasidus brings this down in many places specifically. The idea of the Amalekans, I'll say it first in Hebrew, is Yodea es Ribono, the Ribono Shalolam, Umiskavin Limraid. The Amalek people, they knew very well who the master of the world is. And nevertheless, they rebelled against God. Now that's already a a whole different category. You know, when you have a person that's an ignorant person and doesn't understand who God is, what's the power of God, no, they're a bad person. We'll try to educate them. We'll try to have tolerance for them. We'll bring them to the Museum of Tolerance and all that kind of stuff, you know. But when you have a person that knows, saw the miracles of God, read it in the paper of all the plagues that happened in Egypt, heard about firsthand of the sea splitting for the Jewish people, the manna falling from heaven, these people knew the power of God and nevertheless, they rebelled against God. Now that's a whole nother level. You gotta, we have to like appreciate to understand the cruelty of these people different than everybody else. You know, it's a little bit like a joke, but you know, somebody once said, you know, I don't believe in God. And I say to the person, you know what's interesting is I also don't believe in the same God that you don't believe in. Because a lot of times you meet people and they oh, I don't believe in God. Yeah, of course you don't believe in God. What do you know about God that you don't believe? <laughs> you have to really know it and understand it. And then you could maybe maybe you could come to some conclusion of an opinion. But how could you have an opinion about it if you don't know anything about it? So the Amalek people, they were the epitome of knowledge. They knew of God. They understood God. They had this unbelievable knowledge. And nevertheless, they rebelled. Now, this teaches us something very, very essential to us as Jews. Before a Jew could come to the second mitzvah, which is a total different mitzvah of wiping out Amalek, the first thing is we have to be careful to take out the Amalek that's inside our hearts. The piece of that's inside us that we know, I know the truth, I know what's better. And nevertheless, I'm not following the rule. That piece inside us is an Amalek concept. And this is the, the key and the point of remembering what Amalek did. It's not just to remember something, to be able to do something later in action, to go to war and wipe it, wipe them out. Or through remembering them, you're going to be careful not to do something wrong, like the story of remembering the story of Miriam that will help you not to talk Lashon Hara. It's not about remembering in order that later I shouldn't, it shouldn't lead to something else. The remembering of what the Amalekites did on its own, it accomplishes to clean out the Amalek that's in our heart. It could be 
that by a Jew, the Amalek that's inside our soul, that's embedded inside it. This is like the, the spiritual Amalek that's embedded in our soul. That wants to affect on the Jew to tell you, rebel against God, God forbid. God forbid that the, the Amalek inside you wakes up and says, ah, ah, you're a Torah scholar, you know, you learn Chumash, you learn Tanya, you learn all kinds of parts of Torah, you went to, you went to Jewish day school, you know everything great, but nah, nevertheless, it's okay to sin on it. That's why we need, remember what Amalek did. Amalek was exactly that. They knew and nevertheless, they rebelled. It's not. It's very different than a person that doesn't know at all. This is talking about an awakening that we should know and don't let it happen to you what happened to the Amalek people. If we know and we remember very well what happened to the Amalek people, that they knew and nevertheless they rebelled, if we could drill this into our us and remember this and make a whole big Shabbos about it, that automatically makes it that the Amalek should have no existence, no power. And automatically, they will not have an upper hand. And this is why the remembrance is connected with reading a section in the Torah. Why can't we have a Kiddush, the Shabbos before Purim, bring a bottle of scotch, and by the Kiddush announce, oh, remember what Amalek did. I'm going to, out with alcohol, I'll, I'll, I'll clean the wound with alcohol. What's wrong with that? No, not enough. You have to actually read a piece of the Torah. What does it help to read a couple lines from the Torah? This is probably the only logic I could find that today it became such a ritual that bar mitzvah boys, they memorize, like in the old days we said, you know, memorize a couple lines of a telephone book. Some of these kids, they come and they memorize a couple lines and they read a piece from the Torah. What's the advantage in that? What's the gain? They come, you think they remember it the next day? Yes, there's a small percentage, very small percentage of kids that could even remember the name of their Parsha, let alone the whole piece that they read. There are some kids, all they remember is that they were in synagogue in their Bar Mitzvah. That's all. They don't even know what Parsha it is, right? So what's the advantage to tell a kid and teach a kid and spend weeks and weeks and weeks to help a kid to read a couple lines from the Torah? And so sometimes even a couple, more than a couple lines, Right? Very rare you find a kid that reads entire Parsha. But what's the point to read any just lines of the Torah? What's that helpful? So here's the answer. Regarding this, you could see, appreciate the answer. Reading a couple lines from the Torah about what the Amaleks did gives us a very big power because it helps us to understand that who's the ultimate authority on the world? It's the Torah. Torah is the boss of the world. If you take out a Torah and you read a couple words, that is the boss that changes the realities that we see on the ground in the world. It has an effect on the entire world. And the Rebbe puts in here a parenthesis, but I want to share with you the insights of this parenthesis here. It's mind-boggling of this piece. He quotes it here so subtle, he, I guess, assumes we all know it. But let's recap it. He says, basically, this is like what the sages taught us in the Talmud, Yerushalmi, in the Jerusalem Talmud. They taught us on a words of the verse in Tehillim that says in chapter 57, verse 3, it says there in Tehillim, it says, Le'el goymer alai. Hashem, 
completes for me. What does this mean? So the Jerusalem Talmud says, that David HaMelech, was, what was he saying to Hashem? That Hashem completes something on my, meaning on the Torah's behalf that we learn here in this world. And it tells us, shows us an example, and I'm going to bring you this halacha, where you could see that the rule of the sages, the rule of ruling something in Torah, changes a reality in this physical world. And this, this halacha is the following. There's a law that if a girl under the age of three years old had relations with a man or a boy, the rule is that she's still considered to be a virgin until she's three years old, till her Hebrew birthday. Let's use, for example, today's date. Today was the sixth of other, okay? Let's say yesterday, let's not use today's day, but let's call it, today's her birthday, okay? She turns three years old on the sixth of other. Let's say somebody had relations with a girl yesterday on the fifth of other. Since she's considered to be under three years old, so it's considered to be the way the halacha terminology is, that whatever happened, it was like a poke in an eye. That's the that's the sages' terminology on this subject. The breaking of the hymen is like the poking of an eye. What happens when you get a poke in your eye? A couple of days later, your eye heals and it's back to normal. A girl under three, they're so, their bodies are so still developing that even if their hymen was punctured, it will grow back to be as if, you know, it was never punctured. Like a poke die. That's the, that's the, the, the use of the understanding of it. Now, this is only till her birthday. Three day, th- today's date on the 6th of other. Now, what happens if tomorrow on the 7th of other, or going forward another few days, she had relations with somebody? We say, oh, that's it. Now she's over three. Bodies now are affected by this and she cannot be called anymore a virgin. Now, what's the difference if she's called a virgin or not? It makes a big difference in terms of what you write in her ketubah. There's also um, amounts that make a difference in the ketubah. If you marry a person who's a virgin or not a virgin, there's lots of halachic differences to it, the different values that you have to commit to to your wife when you marry her and so on. So, if, again... If it happened after she was three, so we can't call her a virgin anymore. Now, here, listen to this. In 24 days from now, Rosh Chodesh Nisan, what happens if the courts in Israel determine that, you know what? This year is actually going to be a leap year. It's a leap year. We're adding a 13th month to the year. Guess what? The girl who had a birthday party on today, the 6th of Adar, is going to get to make another birthday party on 6th Adar too. In a month from now. Because the sages determined that now all of a sudden they call it a leap year. So now that it's a leap year, we have a second Adar and she could get new presents and everything beautiful for her third birthday a second time. But what's interesting is, one second, the relations that she had with somebody on the 7th of Adar, we thought it was after her third birthday. 
But because the courts now ruled that it was not her birthday, we, we assumed that that was her birthday. But now that we established that it's a leap year, she's, she did not really turn three. Now she's back to be a two-year-old girl until her birthday next month. What does that show you? That shows you the power of the Torah. That the Torah says, this is the rules of making Rosh Chodesh, I'm making a leap year. And the Torah says, if the courts determine, determine that this is a leap year, guess what? It changes the reality of her body. A, normal, a regular person would think, one second, it is what it is, her body. It, 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 it's either matured and she's not a virgin, is a virgin. How can you change that? Ah, here you see the power of the Torah. The Torah could change the physical condition of this girl's body. And now that it's considered to be that the seventh or eighth of other when there was relations, it's not considered to be any more like an after three-year-old. It's considered to be like before. And now it goes back into the category only like a poke die. Imagine that. What do you see from all of this? The power of Torah. Torah has the power to change a reality of the world. By the way, on another subject, why do people come to shul and make a mishaberach at the Torah? If the doctor said there's no hope, why are you making a mishaberach? Ah, because the Torah could change a reality. And that's why you want to read the story of the Amalekans from the Torah, because the Torah has the power to change the reality. And therefore, when we remember, and we read the section of remembering with them what they did, that helps us to cleanse out and wipe it away completely out of us. So this is one of the reasons why we read the Parsha of Zohar, and that's why it's actually a biblical mitzvah from the Torah to mention what they did. And it's also, if you think about it, one of the, any commandment, a mitzvah that's from the Torah is different than a mitzvah that the sages taught us. What's the difference of a mitzvah that the Torah tells you to do or a mitzvah that the sages told you to do? Well, it's known the explanations in the Achrenim, in the later commentaries that explain that a prohibition from the sages, sorry, a prohibition from the Torah is a prohibition on a physical object. In other words, if the sages said that this piece of meat is not kosher, that piece of meat now becomes repulsive for a Jew. The, a prohibition that the sages instituted is, does not change the piece of meat. It doesn't make that the meat is a repulsive meat. Their prohibition is on the person. The person has this limitation now that you can't eat it. So the difference is whether the, pro, the, the, the effect is on the, the physical item or the effect is on the person. When a prohibition is from the Torah, the prohibition is on the physical item. When the prohibition is from the sages, the, the prohibition is on the person that he has to be careful of the objects of the world. So in other words, the, the prohibition of the sages don't, doesn't have the same kind of effect on the world like a prohibition from the Torah. Because the Torah is the balabas, is the boss of everything in the world. If the Torah says, don't touch that, that thing is a different entity now. 
It is true, the Rebbe brings down, it's true that we know that there are many mitzvahs from the Rabbanon, from the sages, that has us in a certain way, it has a benefit over the mitzvah from the Torah. As the sages taught us, they said, doing a mitzvah that the sages taught us has a certain sweetness that's sweeter than doing something that's straight out of the Torah. Meaning, meaning what? We have to view ourselves like we are like a servant Hashem. A servant always wants to serve their master more and more and more. So a servant keeps on telling to his boss or to the sub-bosses, let's say in this case, the sage says, please bring it on, give me some more rules. Give me some more rules. I want to be able to do more things for you. So it's like, in that way, it's more sweet. So what do we see is that when something is midaraisa, minatorah, it's from the Torah itself, a biblical prohibition has effect on the world itself. Now, the downside is, in other words, downside, meaning the, 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 the negative side, so to speak, of it, that the Torah is telling you a piece of meat's forbidden. But what, what the, the part that lacks at that time is that you don't get to see the uniqueness of the person who's doing the mitzvah. Because you're doing it because not for any benefit. I'm not a servant. In other words, when you, it's not emphasized that you're a servant from Hashem when you're doing the mitzvah that's straight out of the Torah. When you're doing the mitzvah from the Rabbanon that the sages says, you see the skula there. You see the benefit that I went that extra mile. Did you ever have a good friend that you say to your friend before you go on a trip, you say, do me a favor, give me some responsibilities for the trip. Let me buy, take care of the lunch. Let me take care of this. I'll, I'll shop for this. Why do you do that? Because, you know, you make, you want to be, show more, show more love in the whole trip, you know? You're not just doing what the bare minimum that you have to do. You want to, you know, go that extra mile. So when it comes to the actual object of the world, the mitzvah that affects the whole world, on the opposite, the mitzvah from the Torah has the koyach Torah, has the power of the Torah to affect the physical objects. And therefore, reading a section of Parsha Zachar is a mitzvah, it's a positive mitzvah from the Torah, and it gives you the strength that by mentioning it, remembering what Amaleks did, that will help me to get rid of them and wipe them away. And since remembering the Amaleks is an ongoing mitzvah, you remember we said before, wiping out Amalek, we said, has to be done on the community. It's only when there's a king and only when you get into Israel. There's a lot of conditions to that. But remembering Amalek is a mitzvah that's an ongoing 24-7 and any country you are in the world, you still have the mitzvah to, to remember. So it's understood from this that every person has to be careful all the time to remember that this disease of the Amaleks, that they know, and nevertheless they rebel, we got to take that piece out of us. But you got to remember this in order for that to happen. So in other words, even though, of course, chas v'shalom, chas v'chalila, it's God forbid to say that a Jew would have to always be careful not to be in the category that I know, I know better, but nevertheless I'm going to rebel. But nevertheless, you still have to remember at least in some way, in some little way, what the Amalek people did to you. That they were knowers and nevertheless they rebelled. Now to explain this last piece a little bit better, to understand that they know, but nevertheless they rebelled, is a fascinating proof and explanation from the last verse of this subject that we're going to read this Shabbos on the Amalek people. And I'm going to read to you this verse, and the Rebbe is going to show us here that not just remembering is the key 
it's actually, it's all in the letters of God's name. And you could write this down because your hair will stand the time you finish this. He says like this. It says, after the war was over, Moses, his hands were up. We won the war. Joshua killed all those, all the heads. Got rid of it. Shashtil, the Amaleks had no chance anymore. They were gone. They left. They ran away. Whatever. We didn't have problems with them. So Hashem told Moshe, I want you to document the story that happened. Kiyad al case Yudke. Kiyad al case Ya. Because the hand of God has been lifted up on his throne and Hashem Vahashem will always remember what the Amalekans did. They were the first ones to start up with us. That's the end of the piece there. Now, in this verse, there's two words that are written shorthand, short. It says, the hand, kiyad al kais. What's case? Case is from the word kisei. What's kisei? A throne. A throne. Kisei is a throne. So the hand of God is on his throne, but it doesn't say the whole word kisei. It's missing a letter. And then it says kiyad, the hand, is on the throne of Yah. Whose throne? Yah. What's Yah? Yudhei is Hashem's name. The hand is on the throne of God. One second. Why does it say only Yah? Yudhei. What happened to the rest of God's letters of his name? God has four letters to his name. Yudhei and Vavhei. So Rashi brings down there the famous commentaries that say that until the Amalekans are completely wiped off this earth, God's throne is never complete and his name is not complete. That's why the word for throne is written without an aleph. It's written kaf samach instead of kaf samach aleph. Instead of saying kisei, it just says kis. And instead of saying God's full name, it only says yud hey, it doesn't say vav hey. As long as ain shmo shalem, the ain kisei shalem, as long as his name, as long, Hashem's name and his throne will not be completely full until ad sheyimcha shmoi shalamalek, until the name of Amalek will be completely erased. Meaning, we only have God on the level of Yud and Hey. Why is that? What does it got to do with Amalek? What is God's completion of his throne? It's like saying, let's say you're sitting on a throne with three legs instead of four legs. I mean, or two legs instead of four legs. What does that got to do with Amalek? It, only by the story of Amalek we have this. One time in the Torah that his throne is not complete until Amalek's are gone. What is the connection of his throne with, 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 with Amalek, which is basically his name. His name is only Yudke. What does that got to do with Amalek? Until Amalek is gone, only Yudke, no Vavke. What, what happened here? He says, you know what the story is? It's very simple. Amalek, 
they were the fighters against the letters of God, Vav and He. They weren't fighters on the Yud and the He. Yud and the He, Hashem's name is still there. It's the second half of Hashem's name that's broken off. Because the Amalek people fought against the Vav K. They didn't fight against the Yud K. <laughs> the Rebbe says, what? Seemingly, since Amalek, what was their goal? We said before, they knew God. Obviously, they're fighting against the Vav He, not the Yud He. They didn't just know God. They even knew Kabbalah. You know, they knew Yudke Vavke, they knew the names, the letters, that they were quite knowledgeable, huh? They snuck into Yeshiva. So, the, these people, they knew, and nevertheless, they rebelled on Him, on Hashem. If so, what's the reason? First of all, why did they fight only against half of God's name? Why didn't they fight against God completely? If they knew God, they knew about yud and vav Why did they fight against only vav not on the yud And second of all, <laughs> yud is actually the higher part of Hashem's name over the vav yud is the top, it starts from Yud, goes down to He, to Vav, to He. So yud is even higher. What happened? They only fought against the lower half of God's name, not on the upper half. And number three, we still have, if we still have the Yudke, we actually still have a full name of God. God's name is also a complete name, Yudke. You know that there's a there's the famous thing, and the Rambam brings it down right in the beginning of his whole set of laws. The Rambam talks about names of God. And he says there are many names of Hashem, right? We have Elohim, you have Tzavot, Adonai, you have many names of Hashem. Says the Rambam, that there are seven names that are considered to be so holy, you're never allowed to erase it. If you write one of those seven names on a piece of paper, you're not allowed to cross it out. Do you know that the word Shalom is one of God's names? El, Yisrael. El is one of God's names. That's why a lot of people, when they write Yisrael, they put an Aleph, and a Lamed at the end of Yisrael, they put a little hyphen in it. Because if once you write God's name, I may not be able to erase it. So the point is that there are seven very holy names of Hashem that you're never allowed to erase. Well, you know that the name yud alone, without the fav yud alone is a full name of God. It's actually one of the seven names that you can't erase. So since Amalek, their whole... The epitome of who they are is that what? That they know about God and nevertheless they rebelled. Why didn't they rebel on the name yud What happened here? What happened that they only rebelled on vav and not on a full name of God of yud In other words, once you're going to rebel, go all the way. Like, in other words, something must be here. There must be something here that's clear. It's clear that there's something here about this name that's going to tell, teach us the whole message here. And the answer is like this. The difference between the four letters, it's explained in the Tanya, in the Geras Shuva chapter 4, that the Rebbe explains us the, the four letters based on its shape. It comes from the Kabbalah, of course, this idea. Yud is the smallest letter. Yud represents Chachma, wisdom. Because what's Chachma? Chachma means 
I have an idea about something. There's a wisdom. You're a chacham. You don't know all the details, but you have the idea, right? Let's say you see a flyer with a lecture and the title. The title is the catchy thing. I know a little bit about this you know, title, so I'm interested to know more. So chacham is you, have, you know an idea. So that looks like the yud. It looks like just one, it looks like it's the, all the information in one word or one title. The title of the book, you know, is the catchy thing because that title intrigues you to know the rest. So chachma is the yud. Hey, what does the hey look like? Hey looks like a broaden. You take the yud and you stretch it down to the left. You stretch it down to the bottom, make a leg. You add another leg. It's, you're taking from this little dot, this little yud, and you make it into this gansa hey. So hey represents understanding. Un- wisdom and understanding. Chachman Bina. So in the letters of Hashem, Yud is Chachma and He is Bina. Now what's a Vav? Vav is a stick, right? It's a, just a line, a line from the top downwards. That's taking the wisdom and bringing it down from your brain, bringing it downwards into your heart, into your hands, into your stomach, into your feet. In other words, bringing it down into your emotions. Known as the seven midos of the heart. Right? Known as your way of expressing what you know. Which in the Tanya goes through, elaborates about it. That's chesed, kindness, gvura, restrain, netzach, victorious, right? Hoid, glory. Yisod, foundation, malchus, sovereignty. Those are the emotions of the person, how you express everything. So again, Yod is Chachma, He is Bina. That's the world of intellect. Vav is the line that brings it down into your emotions. And then the next He is a further level of expounding the emotions through your speech and your action. That's how you do study Torah, but practice the Torah and practice mitzvahs because your emotions now go into speech and action. From the emotion part, now it spreads all out through your hands and feet. Right? So now, what was the war from Amalek? Was the war of Amalek on our brain, on the intellectual capacity of your relationship with Hashem? Or was the war on the Vavhei, which is the emotional expression of your practicing of your relationship with Hashem? People always ask, if I'm a Jew and I know Torah, Mitzvahs, I'm a great person, Right? Why do I have to do mitzvahs? Mitzvahs is the expression of the Torah. It's the expression of what's in the intellect. Amalek people only fought a war on the emotional part of the Jew, of the practice of the Jew. They did not get involved with your intellect. As a matter of fact, the Amalekans didn't care. You want to study about God. You want to study Torah. Enjoy the intellectuality of it. No problem. Jews are smart. You know, everybody talks. No problem. Amalek didn't have a problem with that. Where did they wage a war? On the action. On the rebellion. They waged war on Vavke of God's name. And that becomes this tremendous rebel. And that's, if you think about it even more, the words of the sages was they said, which means they knew, they had knowing, the word knowing means knowledge. They had the knowledge in Hashem. That wasn't, that wasn't that was a positive piece. 
but nevertheless they rebelled. The knowing had no effect on their emotions. That was a problem. Knowing what's right and wrong is not enough. It's your practicing of what you know with your thoughts, your speech, and your action. So why is Hashem's name broken there and you don't have the full name of Hashem when it mentions about Amalek? Because the Amalek still reigns. The concept of Amalek still reigns. The concept to know intellectually, but it doesn't affect your emotions. Ah, that's an Amalek thing. And they fighting the Vav in the He of Hashem's name. And in this detail... That the knowing God doesn't, if it doesn't, if it doesn't bring to a person to accept the yoke of God, at least to a certain level, that forces you to at least to practice the mitzvahs, then if it doesn't affect it in some way, what are we? We're being a rebellion, a rebellious person. And this every Jew needs to be careful about. In every level of our relationship and serving and knowing God, we could make a mistake with this idea. And we could think that it's all about the knowing, but it's not about the knowing. The Amalek people are all about the knowing. We are a people that's about action. Take the knowledge and bring it down. And by the way, he concludes here that this is actually by divine providence. When did this war wage from the Amalek people against the Jews? After we left Egypt, but before we got the Torah. What do you see from this? The fact that they fought us before the getting of the Torah is because the spiritual Amalek is our enemy. Not to let us get to the, get, get to the Torah. They don't want to let you get to the part where you're going to have the Torah in your hand, meaning you're going to practice it. That's why they fought a war specifically then. They heard the news we were trying to get to the Torah. Practice your relationship with Hashem. No, no, no. They tried to stop that. What was the accomplishment of the Torah, of, of the Torah coming down on Mount Sinai? The accomplishment is, as we know, Torah The Torah is not something that stayed in heaven. We all know the argument that the angels had when Moses came to get the Torah. They said, Let this gift, the Torah treasure, stay in heaven. They didn't want it to come down to the earth. They didn't want that the spirituality should penetrate through the materialisms of this world. Ah, when we knock out the Amaleks, when we nullify the Amalek, that from the brain, it will penetrate and come down into my action, not just into my heart. Because if you keep the whole Torah in your heart and you say, ah, I'm a Jew in the heart, you can get a heart attack. Don't, lo- don't load it all up in the heart. Spread it out to your hands. Let your hands do a mitzvah, your feet to go somewhere to do a mitzvah. Right? You got to express the whole thing. So when we nullify, knock out the Amalek, that's the whole point of remembering and making a whole to-do about this in a Shabbos and to make it on time to hear this piece of the Torah reading. Because if you hear it, the Torah dominates the control of the world. Once the words come out of the Torah, there's no chance anymore for everything around us. And then we could win the argument against the angels that wanted the Torah to stay in heaven and we bring the Torah down here. And this is why it's so great, this whole concept of the remembering it. It's the introduction to the entire idea of getting the Torah. Even before a Jew gets it, we have to nullify and get rid of this Amalekan concept that it's okay just to know 
I should know about the Torah, I should know the Torah, I should be an intellectual, smart Jew, that's good. But if it doesn't come down, then you got stuck with the Amaleks. And through this, that we fulfill this mitzvah of remembering the Amaleks in the time of exile, which, what, is, what do we accomplish by this remembering? We get rid of the Amalekin that's in the soul of the person. This hastens that we're going to be able to wipe out the Amalekins in a literal sense. When is that going to be? When we're going to have Mashiach. And Mashiach is going to come and one of the things Mashiach is going to do is he is going to identify who is a true Amalekin. So then we'll deal with that level. And he's going to wait. It says about Mashiach that he's going to he's going to wage the wars for Hashem. Including the war with the Amalekans. And he's going to succeed. And then after that, he's going to build the third temple. May it be now, speedily in our days. Now just so you know, in terms of time frame, this is a sicha that was said on Parsha Zachar in the year of 1970. And 1973. So imagine this. The Hasidim had to wait until the Fabringen of 1973 to complete the subject that the Rebbe started revealing to us. This whole idea from 1970 and it was revealed in 1973, the completion of it. And only in 1981 did it come out as a edited, published booklet that we could study for all of eternity and actually affect it into us. So this is the conclusion of this 